Welcome to another episode of Ecoville, and we are honoured to be hosting this year's Goldman Prize winner for Australia, Julian Vincent. I firstly want to explain the significance of the Goldman Environmental Prize. Um, this is a prize awarded annually to grassroots environmental activists from each of the world's six geographic regions. It's also called the Green Nobel. The winners are selected by an international jury who receive confidential nominations from a worldwide network of environmental organizations and individuals. Today, I'm honored to be joined on the program by Julian, who has led a successful grassroots campaign to defund the fossil fuel industry in Australia. Hello, Julian, and welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be joining you and having this conversation with you. Thank you so much. Now, um, our first question will be like, after studying climate science and geography and becoming a climate energy campaigner with Greenpeace Australia Pacific for eight years, what inspired you to establish market forces? Uh, the inspiration for what became Market Forces came about when I was working as a campaigner for Greenpeace and starting to notice that we were getting success in our work by targeting money, by targeting the providers of finance to companies and projects. And one of the last campaigns that I was successful on prevented a new coal power plant from going ahead. And the way that we achieved that was by stopping major banks from funding that project. And so it made me consider why isn't there an organization, a grassroots activist organization that is just focused on the role of banks and other financial institutions? And so I set about trying to create something that would do that. And so that is ultimately what became market forces. So just to have something in the movements that would day in, day out focus on the role and behaviour of financial institutions, because as much as politics is very important and mm. civil society and grassroots organising is very important, mm. there was a bit of a gap where we need to also sort of work on on money and finance because it's an immense source of power. All right. So at least we, we now understand like the main focus of the work that you do at Market Forces and the inspiration behind it. And so I wanted to find the purpose, like why is, is, is your work focused on holding financial institutions accountable for funding the fossil fuel industry in your country? Well, it's because the fossil fuel industry is dependent on financial institutions in, in my country, Australia, and in so many other countries around the world. Banks literally can make or break the success of a project, whether it's a yeah. Any big infrastructure project, but the, the sorts of things we work on would be you know, coal mines and power stations and oil and gas infrastructure. These companies need finance, they need investors, they need banks to support them. And so you're talking about the kind of economic financial lifeblood to industries. And so what we're trying to do with market forces is hold the institutions 
that provide that investment accountable for the outcomes. So mm -hmm. if it's a bank lending to a coal mine, we're wanting to make sure that that bank is held accountable for the environmental impacts of that coal mine, be it climate related or if it's if it's uh, related to local environmental impacts such as on health or water or impacts on local communities. And the way that we've been able to do that has really been through shining a spotlight on the outcomes of the banks and other investors' financing activities and using the, the people that these institutions rely on for their support to mobilise them and raise their voice and empower people that financial institutions care about to demand change. And so that's been largely the model. We've done, we've done research that enables people to appreciate how often the custodian of their money, like their bank or their um, pension fund or whatever it might be, mm. is using it to either benefit or, or usually degrade the environment, but giving people the means to use that connection to the bank or the, the pension fund as a source of power and engage with a sense of power and agency um, over that institution. And it's built up over time to the point that we're getting more and more success each year. So, so how has the fossil fuel industry actually contributed to climate change in Australia? Oh, immensely. And not just in Australia, but globally. You know, the, mm -hmm. the role of fossil fuels and especially coal, but increasingly through uh, gas and exported uh, liquefied gas is mm -hmm. incredibly significant. So as a country, Australia has until recently been heavily reliant on fossil fuels for its power generation and that's still the case but it is now decreasing rapidly over time which is good to see but we're one of the world's biggest exporters of lng and we're one of the world's biggest exporters of uh, thermal coal and we are the biggest exporter of metallurgical coal um, that's used in steel making and so australia's role globally is is huge it's sort of behind say some of the, the largest economies in the world it's probably up there as one of the top five or six nations that is essentially keeping the rest of the world addicted to these dirty fuels and blocking progress uh, to the clean energy transformation. So, yeah, the, the role of cutting off uh, fossil fuels from Australia is not just about cutting our own emissions. It's also about giving other nations the opportunity to develop cleanly and grow their energy needs through clean sources rather than helping to line the pockets of uh, executives and directors at fossil fuel mm -hmm. companies in Australia. Mm -hmm. So uh, from, from what you've just said, how is the uptake of renewable energy like among Australians? Is it something that people are keen to take up or people are just uh, sticking to the old um, sources of energy? No, it's immensely popular in Australia now is renewable energy. So uh, the the exact stats at the moment on how much is used around the country is, is uh, I, I don't have to, to mind, but I think we're close to around 20% now yeah. of renewables and that's rising very quickly. Yeah. But what we're also seeing is that the cost of fossil fuel power is driving up electricity prices in Australia and renewable power is already cheaper to build than relying on fossil fuels. So the it's not just an environmental argument that is winning the day here. It's also an economic argument where for most people, 
you're much better off just switching to either renewable electricity that you purchase or or becoming um, self-sufficient, self-reliant by building your own sources of uh, of electricity generation on your roof. That's got a very short payback time now. So I think in Australia, we've been fortunate. I mean, we're obviously a great country for the resources that we have of renewables. We have Mm -hmm. some of the best solar resources in the world, but we also are in a position where economically you're just you'd, you'd be stupid to do anything aside from building new renewables for a, a power source i mean it's just mm-hmm. far cheaper than coal and gas mm-hmm. and so you know we have a com- combination of these these environmental imperatives and the economic mm-hmm. arguments that are rapidly switching over in fact it's entirely possible in australia that in you know, less than 10 years, we could, if we wanted to, we could transition completely out of coal mm-hmm. in Australia, um, such as the the potential and the uh, the value in making these transitions faster. Mm-hmm. I, I am actually um, fascinated by the fact that this could all be done in under 10 years, like moving from fossil fuel to renewable energy. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we, it took a long time it took several decades for technologies like uh, wind and solar to reach the point where they were cost competitive and then cheaper than mm-hmm. building, say, coal and gas power. But we have we have passed that point years ago, not just in mm-hmm. Australia, but in, in many countries. Mm-hmm. And we're also at the point where now in many countries, it's actually more economically beneficial to shut down an existing fossil fuel generator and replace it with renewables so it's not mm-hmm. just about renewables being a better option for a new build it's actually a better option for many existing incumbent um, fossil fuel power stations mm-hmm. to simply just retire them as quickly as you can and replace them with renewables because it's that much cheaper and the challenge that we have of course is making sure we we manage that transition as urgently as we can but also ensure that there's a uh, a fairness and a justness in the way that that transition is delivered. So, for instance, communities that are currently dependent on coal and, and gas uh, extraction as part of their regional economies, you know, these need to be turned into winners uh, mm-hmm. in, when we make, have this transition to clean energy. Uh, luckily, there's so many opportunities to mm-hmm. reskill people, to train people, to provide um, e- uh, economic incentives to build renewable industry in parts of Australia that are currently dependent on fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of you know, having having gov- governments in place that are interested in in telling and having an honest conversation with those communities. Because in recent years, you know, we've just had a change of government here in Australia, and the previous mm-hmm. government's rhetoric was to, to their to, to, to regional Australia that was dependent on you know, coal and gas communities, dependent mm-hmm. on those industries. The narrative was, don't don't worry, this energy transition isn't really happening. Mm-hmm. You'll have you'll have your jobs; they'll go on forever. Don't worry mm-hmm. about it. And, and I think that's a very disingenuous. Um, message to send to your communities because mm-hmm. it's not correct and it's giving them false hope. Mm-hmm. So hopefully now we can have an honest conversation and one that creates more opportunities for people who 
need support in that transition to actually get um, be better off in the long run. Mm-hmm. Okay, just zeroing on something you just said, like um, the, the fossil industry also provides jobs. And uh, earlier on, you said uh, mostly it's for, for, for profit for companies. But I, I want to ask you how you've been able to convince the financial sector to shift away from investing in fossil fuel, even though there are, there are jobs on the line, it compromises profit for big companies. How have you been able to do that? Well, there's, I guess there's two aspects to that. One is the strength of argument. And the other is the strength of power. Mm-hmm. And so you can have the best arguments in the world, but if you don't have power, then you're not going to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. So the arguments that we would use are quite many and varied. So they along the lines of what we've already discussed. So, for instance, there's the, the obvious climate argument that we simply cannot be building new fossil fuel infrastructure if we want to meet the Paris Agreement's goals. And if we're interested mm-hmm. in a any kind of stable livable climate for humanity, then we need to rapidly change course. Mm-hmm. Then there is the the economic argument for it being more beneficial to, to build renewables instead of fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the fact that there's a many jobs created in a renewables industry as well. Mm-hmm. And also when you're talking to banks, um, banks are often invested in most parts of the economy. Okay. So they're invested in mortgages, the housing market, they're invested Mm -hmm. in agriculture, they're invested in transport, and all of these sectors stand to suffer from the physical impacts of climate change. Mm -hmm. So if houses become uninsurable, then banks can't issue right mortgages. If we're going to have more extreme weather events, then this will hurt the the banks as well because Mm -hmm. the assets they're invested in are going to decline as well if we're going to have uh declines in in productivity in in agriculture then that's going to be you know it's obviously the banks won't hurt as much as the people who are in those industries whose, Mm -hmm. whose livelihoods are affected but there is a case to be made to the banks as well so there's all sorts of arguments that you can make that stack up that make it just very obvious that the banks should be investing in things that minimise climate risk as much as possible. Mm. But then, as I say, arguments arguments is one thing and power is another. And the thing that we really did to make those arguments hit home was to build power. And the way that Mm. we did that was tapping into as many people as possible that the banks care about, whether it's um, people who manage their reputation, whether it's their customers, whether it is their mm-hmm. shareholders, whether it's their staff. Mm-hmm. You know, many people who work at banks will also care about climate change and be concerned that not enough is being done and want to see their own place of work uh, do better as well and essentially help empower as many people as possible. So mm-hmm. if you're a customer of a bank, mm-hmm. you can... Yeah, if you're a customer of a bank and, and I tell you that your bank is... Uh, taking your money and then investing in fossil fuels. Mm. You could respond to that in a very negative way. You could say, oh, that's that's terrible. I feel awful. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I feel like there's nothing I can do. Or you can treat that as a, a ticket to campaign with. So mm. all of a sudden, the bank that has is holding onto your money is doing something that disagrees with your values. 
Mm-hmm. And that is an opportunity for you to engage the bank and say, hey, listen, if you want to keep my business, then you need to stop investing in in dirty energy. Mm-hmm. And so that is what has built up over time. And over many years, hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of people did this. And we did the same with shareholders. We've done the same with staff, people that matter to the financial institutions. And then we started to get these policy changes. So we got to a point where the, the banks aren't going to lend to new coal mines or new coal power stations, and they're going to phase out their exposure to to thermal coal by the end of this decade, which you know is only one of many things that they need to do to be considered consistent with the Paris climate goals. But mm. in a context like Australia's, where there's been such a politically dominant coal industry for so long, I think that was a really stunning outcome. Mm-hmm. I, I actually want to uh, talk about... Um, uh, your divestment, uh, you organized in 2016, actually, you organized uh, divestment days across Australia where groups of bank customers visited local branches of pro coal banks and closed their accounts and posted that on, on social media. I guess it was a, a campaign that you guys initiated. So how successful has this campaign been from 2016 to now? And what significant changes has it brought to operations in financial institutions and how they view environmental issues? Well, that had a, a really significant role in the campaign, the divestment days. And if people can picture, uh, imagine a scene where a bank is opening their doors at the start of the day and maybe several thousand people are all queued up out the front of the bank wearing T-shirts saying, my bank chose fossil fuels, so I chose another bank. Mm-hmm. And one by one, they walk in and they close their account for the same reason. You know, this, that's quite a, a powerful symbolic gesture. But the point of us doing that was about, as you say, people post messages on social media about it. We also got mainstream media coverage of that work. Mm-hmm. We, um, we basically were telling stories about how Australians were not willing to have their own personal finances connected with, with coal and gas. Mm-hmm. So the whole point wasn't about how much money we may move on the day. The point was about having a public conversation in Australia about how people in this country don't want their their money connected to the fossil fuel industry. Mm-hmm. And so what it's done is really forced the banks to reconsider how they manage their own reputation. And and essentially we're we're <laughs> we're in a kind of um communications battle now Mm -hmm. where the banks are trying to tell the most positive story that they can of what they're doing. And we're trying to tell the story about how uh, irrespective of the bank's progress, they're still investing in companies that are, that, that whose business strategies depend on the failure of the Paris Agreement and are still investing in new fossil fuel projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and really the whole idea of things like divestment days is about the, the story for listening. I think the most important message in that is that it doesn't matter if you have, I don't know, a, a million dollars or mm-hmm. just a few dollars with a bank, your capacity to tell that story and demand change of the bank is exactly the same. And and so and that is what creates the change. It is the publicity because banks really treat reputational risk very seriously. And not just bank I'm talking a lot about banks in this interview, but it's insurers, it's pension funds, it's companies, all of them 
really appreciate this concept of social license. And if they feel like their social license to operate from the community is being diminished or eroded, then they realize they need to take steps. And so that is, that is one of the most empowering things I think we have because anyone can speak up, anyone can can send a message to a bank, can do it publicly, can tell their family and friends, and the and the, the financial institution will be thinking, okay, how many people can this this person talk to? How many, how much lost business does this mean in one year or three years or five years down the track? Because people associate our name and our brand with environmental damage, and that's the kind of calculus the banks are going to have to do. So, the reputational risk is something that is very much in the favor of those who are trying to create change. So I, I like how you use that reputational risk to actually make changes in the financial institutions in your country. Yeah, and it's it's a, a model that works um, in many parts of the world. And okay. you know, I think it's every every country is different. The capacity for Public dialogue and engagement is is different, and so you know I'm, I'm not going to uh, sit here and pretend that uh, what we do, everything about what we do, can be replicated in every other country and every mm. other context. But I would certainly encourage everyone who wants to get these kinds of changes from companies and financial institutions to see what it is that they can do to elevate reputational risk and concern for companies because you know many of these companies as well if we're talking finance it's a global industry fossil fuels is also a global industry um you have i know that you have energy and resource companies from australia operating in africa mm-hmm. you have um famously you know one of the other gold one of the other goldman winners this year uh, from Nigeria, uh, mm-hmm. was successful for a campaign on Shell in Nigeria, which is a, a mm-hmm. Dutch company. And so that that reputational exposure of a company, it might be that the the problem that is generated is in I don't know, it could be in any part of the world, but but it's it is a, that company is still accountable to audiences in 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 many other countries internationally. And so it's worth thinking about who that company can be held accountable to mm-hmm. and, and try and work to to raise those concerns because we're like here in Australia we've we've got you know the the absolute privilege of freedom that um, you know we can we can speak up and we can do so mm-hmm. much. Uh, but there are opportunities in, with other parts of the world to work with people so that maybe a company from Australia that is creating damage in somewhere in maybe, I don't know, South America or, or Southeast Asia, mm. there's opportunities to work together to hold that company accountable as well, or Africa or anywhere, mm-hmm. anywhere. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so after talking about uh, the other um, uh, people who won the, the Goldman Prize, I, I want to zero in on that. And can you tell us about that moment you, fa- you found out you were the 2022 Goldman Prize winner for Australia? How did you feel? Where were you? Were you expecting it? <laughs> no, I was definitely not expecting it because um, I think, as you said, it's a confidential process. So... I didn't, uh, I didn't, and nobody knows that they're even in consideration until they find out that they've been, that they'll be awarded it. Mm-hmm. So, um, funnily enough, I was getting um, missed calls from the United States for about two days. Mm-hmm. And because I get a lot of, 
I get a lot of um, spam on my phone. Mm-hmm. I, did, I was ignoring these phone calls. <laughs> and so um, it took about three days, but then someone who, who, was a, who was a referee for me told me, hey, Julian, can you pick up the phone the next time it rings? Because it's a, it's a good call. You should take the call. <laughs> So um, so I did, and uh, then I kind of worked out uh, once I took the call what was going on, um, mm-hmm. and yeah, it was quite an incredible moment. I was I was sitting in 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 my office, um, and I think I had a few moments to just take in the significance of it, and I think there's just this very overwhelming wash of emotion come over mm-hmm. me at that moment because you know I've. I, I guess I, I know how significant it is. Mm. Um, I think it's it's regarded as basically the, the highest sort of highest environmental campaigning award that there is, and mm-hmm. and uh, maybe two hundred people have have received it in the course of its thirty years. So, yeah, that's um, you know that's very it, it's got this weird way of being inducing a lot of pride, but also very humbling at the same time. Mm-hmm. And because I've seen some people who I've worked alongside in recent years also receive the, the award and know how hard they work and know what they've achieved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also the fact that several people who really inspired me to get into environmental activism also won the award back in the early days. The fact mm-hmm. that my heroes have won this award um, I guess it sent me a little bit weak at the knees initially to to get that news, um, but it's it was a tremendous feeling, uh, and yeah, you know, it's a kind of funny thing because this is the sort of work that you go into, not at all motivated by prizes and awards. Mm-hmm. Um, you're motivated by achieving success and winning campaigns. And then when I win a campaign, I just want to go and win the next one and keep going and going and and get as much. But there is something quite, um, it's it's just a wonderful thing to get that recognition. There's just not enough recognition, you know, you know, there's, there's, got to be tens of thousands of people out there who are, are working as hard and uh, are probably taking more risks with themselves and their lives. Um, and they are absolute heroes. And so, you know, the best I can do is receive this award knowing that um, I've obviously worked very hard to get it, but I've, I've got it because of so many other people as well mm-hmm. taking action and, and being part of campaigns that have driven real change, you know, without without people power, without people actually getting involved in these campaigns, I would just be a, a, a guy who had some good ideas and couldn't mm-hmm. do anything with them. And my team would just be a group of people that have good ideas that couldn't do anything with them. So it's all about the people that drive these campaigns that lead to individual individual awards like this as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to also talk, like, go into the conversation about awards in themselves. How significant are these awards? Like, you have gold, many of other uh, uh, environmental awards, but do you think they are significant in highlighting environmental issues? I would say so, yeah. Um, you know, from an Australian perspective, uh, I mentioned the significance of people who've won it before. The 
the, the campaigns that have that have had people receive awards, uh, golden prizes in the past are some of the most iconic campaigns that we knew of in Australia when I was first getting involved in, in campaigning. And I think it is really important that that foundations like um, like the Goldman Environmental Prize exist and mm-hmm. who's, who makes it their role to highlight environmental campaigns and highlight environmental champions as well because there is a lot of heroism in this sort of work and it's unsung and people don't get anywhere near the appreciation, um, let alone the compensation that they deserve. And I think the human aspect of of campaigns is one of the, the beautiful parts of campaigns themselves. Like if you go on to the Goldman Prize, you'll see you'll see some incredible images of beautiful parts of the world that deserve protecting and you'll see some mm-hmm. wonderful stories of campaigns that have successfully protected um, and preserved parts of the world and you'll see stories about the people and what they've done as well. Uh, and we need this kind of – we need spirits, you know. Yeah. We, need, we need to see as much positive recognition that – people are are standing up and defending the the very precious and vital environments that we have and that we depend on and won't just roll over and be mm-hmm. uh, be be trodden on by by greedy corporations or mm-hmm. or selfish or corrupted governments and you know, we need a, a lot more environmental defending and, you know, in the same way that our campaigns have been successful by storytelling about what people want from their banks, I think we need more storytelling of, of people and communities working to defend environments and push back against just rampant corporate greed. So the Goldman Prize is is in, is wonderful in that regard. What you're doing is a contribution as well, and a really valuable contribution to this kind of conversation as well. But we need mm. we need to get these stories up and out and into the world, and mm. get other people inspired, and make people not just feel, but know that they can they can win, they can be successful, and they can create change because it it does happen, um, and and provide people that kind of support. Mm-hmm. And personally, for me, like there are significances, I get to understand what uh, people are doing to protect the environment in like different parts of the world. Something I, I, w- I would not have known. So um, um, I, I know of what's happening in Australia. I know of what's happening in Africa. I know of, of, of what other people are doing to safeguard the environment. And for me, that's why they are so significant. Yeah, um, I agree, and I think that's again one of the reasons why you know what you're doing with the podcast and what um, organisations like Goldman Environmental Prize. Th- th- I guess there are some fundamental aspects to 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 success in environmental campaigning and advocacy and activism that would carry across all parts of the world, but there's also so much to be learned by mm-hmm. 
for someone like me in Australia, looking to help people uh, achieve change in in Asia and in South America and in Africa mm-hmm. uh, and and in Europe and in and North America, like there's there's differences that we can learn lessons from and and we can tap into um, that that richness of experience and that diverse experience. Um, so, you know, I think it's also doing doing this kind of work and this storytelling is also an investment in more advocacy and and more campaigning and more environmental protection. Mm-hmm. So, so lastly, Julian, uh, Julian has won the Goldman Environmental Prize for 2022. So what's next for you as um, an environmental advocate and what's next for market forces? Well, we, um, we've, got a, we've got a long list of, of things to do, don't we? Um, yeah. Not just me, not just market forces, but it, around the world, just on, on climate, for instance. There are companies, luckily, there are a very small number of companies when you consider the whole sort of universe of companies that are out there. There's a very small number of them doing an outsized amount of damage and mm-hmm. that are attempting to still expand fossil fuels, mm-hmm. whether it's coal mines. There's companies out there still trying to build new coal mines. There are companies trying to build more fossil gas infrastructure or explore for new oil, that kind of thing. And we've got to get to the point where that is just not tolerated mm-hmm. by anyone. Mm-hmm. You know, we, don't have, we don't have room for this. You know, we're currently on track to completely below the the target of 1.5 degrees at the limit of global warming. And we're definitely going to do that if we can't stop expanding fossil fuels. So the biggest job that we have uh, as as market forces, as an environment movement in Australia, as a global movement, is to stop the expansion of fossil fuels. And from a finance point of view, we need all of the banks and the insurers and the, the institutional investors to tell any company that is trying to expand fossil fuels that they're not welcome, that they're not going to get support while they're trying mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we have um, some really interesting but also, uh, I guess, concerning dynamics evolving when it comes to the, the infrastructure that's already built. Mm-hmm. We have to phase out coal power globally by 2040 and we have to phase it out in wealthy like OECD countries by 2030 mm-hmm. to be consistent with the Paris Climate Goals, that is a conversation that at the moment is only really happening at the level of big investors and mm-hmm. they are not motivated to, to achieve outcomes that are aligned with the Paris Goals. They are still mm-hmm. looking for their, their revenue and as, as basically as much money as they can get. And so we've got a there's a big conversation that will emerge in the next year or so about who will manage the replacing of coal power around the world with renewables, who will own that, who will benefit from that, and we need a lot more advocates joining that conversation because at the moment it's being dominated by companies who don't have. Uh, the Paris Agreement and environmental protection top of mind. So those are the two big things that I think still face us. But you know, we if we want to have a sensible conversation about re- replacing fossil fuels with renewables, we can't do that while we're still expanding fossil mm-hmm. fuels. So that's a really key hurdle that we need to overcome now. And, 
and fortunately the movement is growing uh, it feels like the movement is growing exponentially it's very hard to keep up with the growth which is a good thing uh but clearly we need to catch up to um companies that frankly will get away with as much as we allow them to get away with and there's a lot of accountability to be brought to companies that have no regard for mm-hmm. a anything like a safe climate future um and and they have they have investors they have shareholders they have clients they have people who who they're accountable to they have staff they have ways in which uh, campaigns can can tap into those companies and change their behavior so there's a long list for us to get stuck into and the good news is that we've got not just through market forces work we have lots of successful models of campaigning that we can roll out and achieve this change Uh Julian thank you so much for joining us and I hope you achieve everything on your on your long list and we appreciate all the work that you do. Not clearly thanks so much for your time as well. It's great to talk to you and I just wish you um all the best and and the very best of luck. Thank you very much. Well, thank you again to all our listeners. Please don't forget to subscribe, like and follow us on our social media pages. Our handle is ecofilzw on all platforms. Join us next week for another episode. I'm your host, Nonsigelelo Kwakam.